0: Our text this morning is coming from Ephesians chapter 2, and if you are there, I'm not, <laughs> I would ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word to kind of get, a, get our minds focused upon it. I'm still not there. You guys are better than me. I'm going to read all, like as Stacy did last week, verses 11 to 22, although uh, I'm going to be focusing my message on verses 14 through 18. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we are always so grateful that you have given us your word and that it is living and active and that it speaks to us. You speak to us through it. And Father, that is my prayer this morning, that as we as we meditate upon your word, that we will hear your voice and that it will indeed cut to... The, the, the very center of our being, and that we would have an encounter with you this morning. I pray that as we end today, when we leave, that no one will remember anything that I said except that which came from you. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. When we were living in Africa... I was driving through an agricultural area, rural area out in the country, and I needed to get gas, so I pulled into this gas station. And while I'm pumping gas in my car, a truck pulls in next to me carrying with a trailer pulling a bunch of sheep, uh, a trailer full of sheep. Not long after that, another one pulls in on the other side with a trailer full of goats, I texted a picture and sent Teresa and said, "The sheep are on my left, the right, the goats are on my left." <clears throat> uh, but I also remember thinking, of course, of Jesus' words as I looked at that scene, and I also pondered the fact, in light of what Jesus said, that they are what they are. Goats don't become sheep. And I think in our context today, we see that self-identity has become preeminent, hasn't it? That's, that's what's on everybody's mind it, or in the culture's mind today. We are told that we, it doesn't matter how our family might define us, it doesn't matter how a traditional culture might define us, it doesn't even matter how biology might define us. All that matters is how we define ourselves. That's what we're told. Our text, thankfully, liberates us from that foolish and faulty ideology. Because it doesn't give us the authority to identify ourselves. All that matters is how God identifies us. And there are only two identities in the great scheme of things, in the eternal scheme of things... It's not Democrat and Republican, and it's not Jew and Gentile. It is to stay with Jesus' analogy, sheep and goats. Now, there are lost sheep yet to be found, and that's why missions and evangelism exist. But ultimately, there are sheep and goats. Our passage today is about one people and one peace. One people, the sheep, from wherever they may come to get to christ not jewish believers distinct from gentile christians not gentile believers distinct from jewish christians but the one people is the church the church simply means the called out ones you may know that's the word in greek ekklesia it means those that are called out the called out ones and it is the true people of god throughout time from the godly line of seth all the way to Abraham, 2,000 years that predate Israel, the godly, the godly people that trusted in God. Matter of fact, if you look at what we call the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, the very first one mentioned is Abel, Adam and Eve's son. And then when God spoke to Abraham, he told him that you will be a blessing to all the families of the earth so even at its inception the nation of Israel was situated to bless the world God also told Jacob that his sons would be a worshiping community and that word community in the Greek version of the Old Testament is ekklesia in fact every instance in the Old Testament or almost every instance in the Old Testament when your Bible says the assembly, or the congregation, when it's talking about the nation of Israel, the Greek version uses that word, ekklesia. And Peter even calls the Old Testament church, the Old Testament people of Israel, the church in Acts chapter 7. I'm belaboring this point because I'm saying that the church was not born at Pentecost, as we sometimes are taught. Now, of course, something new happened at Pentecost, and you could say the New Testament church, perhaps... Uh, came into being there, and the Spirit was poured out in a way that had never been done before. So this was a, a cataclysmic change in the people of God, but the people of God, the church, stretches all the way through time. In fact, it stretches from Abel and Seth to Abraham and Jacob to David and Paul and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and you. All of us are part of the body of Christ. God's plan has always been to call out one people, and his provision has always been to use Christ to redeem us and make us at peace with God. And that's my first point this morning, and it comes from our text directly, Christ is our peace. And if you look at our text, again, we're in verse 14, that's how it begins. He himself, Jesus, is our peace. Doesn't say he brings peace or he gives peace. It's saying that he is our peace. This is, of course, the fulfillment of prophecy. Around Christmas time, we always hear Isaiah 9 6, right? For unto you a child is born. And we hear of some of the names, the titles, wonderful counselor, prince of peace. That was prophesied about the Messiah long, long before he came. Micah is even more specific. In chapter 5, verse 5, it says that the Messiah will be their peace. In Hebrew, you may know the word for peace is shalom. Shalom comes from a root word that means restitution. It means to be made whole. So, in the Jewish greeting, shalom aleichem, what they're really conveying is may you be whole. And when you think of it that way, it adds a lot of clarity in the passage where Isaiah talks about his call in Isaiah chapter 6, when he's in the glorious, holy throne room of God, in the presence of perfect holiness and purity, and he's aware suddenly of his own sinfulness. He's not whole. What does he say? Woe is me. I've become undone. That's the kind of peace that Jesus gives us. He makes what's undone whole, true peace. Seventy years ago, next month, there was a war going on, raging in the Korean Peninsula. And on July uh, 27th, 1953... They signed the Korean Armistice Agreement. And this established the DMZ, the demilitarized zone at the 38th parallel that divides North Korea from South Korea. And they stopped fighting. But they're still at war. 70 years later, there's never been a peace treaty signed between North and South Korea. Because see, an armistice isn't peace, an armistice is a truce. Christ doesn't give us a truce. Christ gives peace. And that point kind of sets the stage where I really want to go today. And the second point is that Christ created one people out of two. And that's the meat of our passage this morning. And if you look, we have parallel themes. Look at verse 14. It says that he himself, he has made us both one. Well, who's the us both? We have to go back to the earlier verses and we see that he's talking about the circumcision and the uncircumcision, the Jew and the Gentile, and he's saying us because Paul is a Jew and he's speaking to Gentiles. So he's saying he has made us both one and broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Now look at verse 16, says that he is going to reconcile us both to God, who's the us both? again? Jew and Gentile, but this time instead of being reconciled to each other, we're being reconciled to God and continue down killing the hostility. Well, what's this hostility? This is the hostility between man and God. So we have two parallel themes going here. Well, Let's talk about the first one first. How did he make this peace? Verse 14 says he's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So he broke down walls and abolished laws when it says breaking down walls some people think that this is alluding to the stone wall that was around the temple Um, in in the temple the the gentiles there was what was called the court of the gentiles it surrounded the temple and that's where the gentiles were allowed to go to to do trade perhaps uh, change money Um, Images were illegal, so you couldn't take uh, coins with images of Caesar into the temple to make an offering or a sacrifice, so there would be people out in the court of the Gentiles that would give you a blank coin called a temple coin in exchange for your coin with Caesar on it. So they could do that, but there were keep out signs all the way around the temple that tells a Gentile, if you cross, it means death. And there are some people that think that's what Paul is talking about here. However, I, I don't because if that wall was taken down, it would just have the Gentiles worshiping as Jews. And we know from the Jerusalem Council at Acts 15 that that's not the case, that Gentiles don't have to become Jews to become Christians. So I don't think that's what he's talking about. But I do think he's using this as an illustration because Paul is in prison as he's writing this for what? He's accused of taking a Gentile across that wall. So I think it's fresh in his mind, and I think it's why he's using it as an illustration. Other people have said that this is perhaps the veil that was rent in the temple while Christ was on the cross, you may recall. Rent from the top to the bottom, signifying that it's God tearing the the curtain, the veil. And some have said that that's to say that now everyone has access to God again I don't think that's what that means I think that's God showing us that he's not there that's not where God dwells I believe that henceforth when Christ says it is finished God is dwelling in the body of Christ initially in John two twenty one, John says that Jesus refers to his fleshly body as the temple of God but then of course spiritually the church, the body, is being made into the temple of God. And I'll steal a little thunder from Stacy's message in a couple of weeks. But if you, if you go down to verses 21 and 22, you'll see this. That the structure is growing into a temple in the Lord. You are being built together into a dwelling place for God. The church the body of Christ is the dwelling place of God so I don't think it's the wall I don't think it's the veil I'll tell you what I do think it is I think that it is the ceremonial law that the Jews practiced the sacrificial law that the Jews practiced and I get that as you continue it says he broke down in his flesh the dividing wall by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Not just the commandments, if it stopped there, it would make us think he did away with the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments. I don't believe that's the case at all. It's those that are expressed in ordinances, because every one of the elements of the ceremonial system, the sacrificial system, was pointing to Jesus, was pointing to what would happen in Jesus' earthly ministry, whether we're talking about the, the, the laver or the candlestick or the lamb or all of those details, the priest. All of those details were pointing to Christ. If you don't believe me, read Hebrews. (laughs) That's what that whole book is about. It's showing how all of those things were pointing to Jesus. So he abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Paul doesn't think that he did away with the Ten Commandments. In just a few chapters, in chapter 6, he's going to say, Children, obey your parents and the Lord for it's right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. He's sticking to the commandments, even here in his letter to the Ephesians. Jesus likewise in Matthew 5 said, Don't think that I came to abolish the law. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Well, he fulfilled the ceremonial law, he fulfilled the sacrificial law. Because that was never really effective anyway. We read in Hebrews and elsewhere in Psalms and other places that the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. It's not a sufficient sacrifice, but it points to the one who is who will be, and from our perspective, who was. And so no longer do we need ceremonial laws and rules and sacrificial systems. There is no more sacrifice for sin. He paid that once for all, and again in verse 14, in his flesh. It was his flesh that paid the price. It was the the death of Christ on the cross. So I don't believe it's the, the wall in the temple. I don't believe it's the veil in the temple. I believe it is the ceremonial law, which is a figurative wall. But look, at, there's hostility from both sides. The Jews would say, no matter how bad we are, we're still the people of God. We can still go in there. And no matter how good the Gentiles are, they're not allowed in. And the Gentiles would certainly see that as well. We're not allowed in. These people must think they're special. So the ceremonial law, the divisions, created the hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. Jesus abolished that in his flesh on the cross. And then immediately after that, in verse 15, he abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that, this is the purpose for it, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. We are a new creation. The cross of Jesus is not something that we all say, hey, I agree with you about that. That's awesome. That's wonderful. Let's get together every week, maybe maybe on a Sunday, and sing about it and, and, and meditate on it and talk to each other about it. No. No, the, the cross of Christ is utterly transformative. It changes us. He doesn't just dress us up like an unwashed man wearing a spiffy new tuxedo. He, we are a new creation. He creates life where there was death. A spirit-driven heart that used to be driven by self. A God-longing heart that used to only long ...for our own passions and desires. And Paul comes back to this theme time and time and time again. Galatians, and I suggest that you jot these down. Galatians 6.15. He says, for neither circumcision counts for anything. So being a Jew doesn't count for anything. Nor uncircumcision, being a Gentile doesn't count for anything. But a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. Ephesians 2.10, we just heard this a few weeks ago. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And in Ephesians 4.24, put on the new self created after the likeness of God. Beloved, we are not a changed people. Simply, we are a new creation. And as such... He made us one new man. One. When he creates us to be new, he creates us of the same thing, of the same essence. When he made you a new creation, he made you the same way that he made me a new creation and the person sitting next to you a new creation. He made us all one new man. Not millions of men and millions of women, but one new man. Yes, of course, we are all made new individually, but God sees us and deals with us collectively as the body, as the body of Christ. We are not created to be independent. We are created to be one. And then, as we continue back in our text, he might reconcile us both to God. So the first thing he does is we are created to be new, and then we are reconciled to God in one body his body that's the third point Christ makes peace between that new creation and God there was and is enmity between God and man whether you're Jewish man, Gentile man that part doesn't matter there's always been enmity between God and sinners and as One writer says, sin breeds a quarrel between God and man, and Christ came to take up the quarrel and bring it to an end. He did this by creating one new man from what was divided, and then reconciling that new man to God by his death on the cross. Let me say that again. He did this by creating one new man from what was divided, and then reconciling that new man to God by his death on the cross. And of course, this comes right out of Colossians 1. 20 to 22, where it says that he's reconciling to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. There we have the peace again. And in Romans 5, 1, we see the same thing. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll notice in verse 17, as we continue in our text, that he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. They both needed to have peace preached to them. Both Jew and Gentile needed to hear that there is no peace without Jesus. I'm not a big fan of bumper stickers. I mean, just personally, because I feel like you say something once and then you don't know if you want to repeat it, but there it is stuck forever on the back of your car. But I like the one that says, no Jesus, with N-O, no peace, N-O, and then no Jesus, K-N-O-W, no peace. Because there is no peace without Jesus. And then verse 18 says that... Because of all of this, we have access in one spirit to the Father. This word access could also be translated introducer or introduction. And do you see the Trinitarian reference here? We're presented through Christ by or in the spirit to the Father. The law prohibits access to lawbreakers, and that's all of us. But grace invites access for those that have been reconciled to God. And I read Romans 5.1 a minute ago. If you continue in 5.2, it says, By whom also, Christ, we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only do we have access to the very throne room that Isaiah was able to get a glimpse of, we have access into the very grace and hope that, that characterize what it means to be a Christian. So now let's shift gears and see what does this look like? Well, first, do we live like we believe these glorious truths? The world is watching. Those people you know who at the present time don't profess faith in Christ, maybe your friend down the street or at work or the grumpy person at the checkout line at the grocery store, they could... Be changed into the same thing you've been changed into next week or next month or tomorrow. They could be brought near. They could be reconciled to God. They could have that same access to the Father and be part of the body with us. Do we live like we believe that when we interact with people? Jesus prayed in John 17 verse 21. He prayed that we would all be one just as you Father are in me and I in you. That they may also be in us. Listen to this, so that, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He wants us to be one so that the world that is watching will believe. Our oneness in Christ is missional. That's the purpose for it. We should live like it. But also hear this, peace precedes reconciliation. Not the other way around. We must really know peace in order to promote peace. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.18 that we are called to be ministers of reconciliation. We can't do that until we have first experienced the peace ourselves. And, and uh, we'll get, Stacey or whomever, will get to this when we move into chapters 4 and beyond. But the point is what unites us has to be stronger than whatever divides us. My entire doctoral dissertation was on this exact theme. I witnessed in Myanmar, which is a a tribal country, um, there are many tribes, and they identify by their tribe to the point that I had pastors telling me that they would rather their daughters marry a non-believer of their tribe than a Christian from another tribe. These are pastors because they identify first By that identity, by how they identify themselves, by how their family or their tradition or whatever defines them, and not by how God defines them. Jesus prayed that we'd be one, and then he answered that prayer on the cross. Beloved, we are one, whether we live like it or not. And whenever we don't live like it, we're denying the reality that Christ purchased for us on the cross. The early Christians, the early church, called themselves the third race. And that's how others called them as well. It had nothing to do with ethnicity. Again, that's how people identified themselves. The first race was the Greco-Roman world that had many gods. The second race was the Jewish people that, of course, only had one. But then you had these Christians that were somewhere in the middle. They said they had one God, but there were more than one divine persons. And so they were considered the third race. And also, they were not united by anything really other than that belief. They, weren't, they, they came from different countries. They came from different languages. They came from different backgrounds. But they were united. Their identity, they understood it to be that they are one in Christ An early church historian, Chrysostom, said it this way. It's not that Christ brought one... He's talking between the Jew and Gentile. It's not that Christ brought one up to the level of the other, but that he has produced a greater. As if one should melt down a statue of silver and another of lead, and the two come together as gold. That's how we should see what Christ did for us. One, from the imperfections of both, he produced, created a greater the one that is the body of Christ. So we have peace with God and peace with one another. That's what Jesus has given us by his sacrifice in our place. And that's what enables us to obey the two great commandments. Right? When Jesus was asked, he was said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. We, we say that these are the two tablets of the law. All right, so when it says that loving God is the first four commandments, loving your neighbor is the other six commandments. But these are the two uh, tablets of the law, which, by the way, I want to make this point briefly, Um, all ten of those commandments can be found before they were given to Moses on Mount Sinai. In the earlier chapters of Scripture, in the way that God interacts with people, you can find all ten of those, and you can understand that all ten of those are things that are important to God. I mean, the the most glaringly, of course, is is when Cain killed Abel, right? We we knew right then, thou shalt not murder. That lesson was, was real clear, and if you dig deep enough, you can find the other nine in there as well. But Jesus summed them up by those two heads, if you will. Love love God and love your neighbor. Well, if we have peace with God, that leads to loving God. If we have peace with one another, that leads to loving one another. Without that peace, we can only pretend. Beloved, enmity with God is gone. Not an armistice, not a truce... But gone, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The peace that he has made with us. Killing the hostility between God and man. Not not knocking it out, not putting it to sleep. Killing the hostility, that's what our text says. Killing the hostility through the cross. We are at peace with God. No condemnation. And we have access. Not just to God, not just to heaven, but to God himself. To that throne room where Isaiah got a glimpse, and not as a servant, but as a child. And the roots of the enmity between us, between believers, are also gone. We may still hang on to some things, and don't get me wrong, we can disagree about a lot of things, but we don't have to do it in a way that makes us enemies, or that makes us appear to be enemies. And we'll, again, we'll get to that more in later chapters in Ephesians. Paul deals a lot about that. There's only one peace. There's no substitute for Jesus. He is the only way. And there's only one people. There should not be any division, any hostility, or any priority. It is Father's Day. We heard a couple of weeks ago that before we were saved, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were following the course of this world. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In other words, while we were lost sheep, we looked a lot like goats. But God, but God who is rich in mercy, he made us alive. And he has raised us up and seated us with him. We've been brought together as one, made a new creation by Christ, and granted access by the Spirit to our Father. I think Father's Day is certainly an appropriate time to meditate on that. So it's my prayer as we wrap up that we'll all go out of here prepared to promote the gospel of what? Of peace, of course. And that's what Paul calls it in Romans ten fifteen when he's quoting Isaiah, actually, and he says... How beautiful are the feet of those that preach the gospel of peace? The gospel of peace. But it's not just for preachers. Ephesians 6.15, again, in this book later on, when we are being told about putting on the armor of God as shoes for your feet put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. That's what this is all about. Christ is our peace. And because he is our peace, he has made us all one in him. We are one in him, and he has reconciled us to God. There is no hostility vertically, horizontally, and there's no hostility vertically. We are at peace, even if we don't always look like it. And I would say if you don't know that peace, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, you can. And there will be those of us that would love to pray with you, if you would like to... uh, to do that or you can contact us anytime we would love to talk to you about that let's pray father we delight to know that you are uh, you are our father and that you have given us the peace that passes all understanding the peace that unites us in christ the peace that reconciles us to you. That we have no fear of any judgment or wrath because we are truly at peace with one another and with you. Father, help us to live out that peace in our daily lives. Help us to find ways, intentional ways to exercise and demonstrate the fact that we are one. That all those who believe in Jesus by faith are one. So that the world will see us, say, wow, they're different. That the world that doesn't know peace will see a people who do. May you be glorified in our lives and may we delight in you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.